welcome back to the Brothers Book Club podcast. We're here today with another book review episode. Joining me, as per always, I don't know, is that too is that too uh, extreme to say? Mostly always. <laughs> <laughs> Joining me sometimes always is uh, podcast co-host Amanda. Hey, Amanda. Hello. Welcome back. Glad to have you along for this journey, which... Yeah. Was quite a journey. Uh, we'll be covering some mythology today. We cover Ovid. The Fall of Icarus is what Penguin has deemed it, or is what they've titled it. If you're unfamiliar with the review show we've been doing, we're going through the Penguin Little Black Classics collection. That is a collection of 80 pieces of world literature. And we're on episode, I believe, 73. There we go. I had to check the front page uh, of the title today. We're on episode 73, which means we are, I mean, we're basically done. This is retirement years for us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Are we going to senior slide, you think? We're just going to slide this one out? Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay, yeah. That's not (laughs) in our podcast mandate, but that's okay. We're entitled. We've worked pretty hard for 73 episodes, roughly speaking. And I think we're entitled to a couple slack-off episodes. I don't know if this will be the one. We'll we'll see. We've joked in the past that things we didn't love, we joked about it, you know, lasting 20 minutes, and it never has. So I don't know if Ovid's (laughs) going to be the one to (laughs) start that kind of, uh, I was going to say, ignoble club or something, that sort of notorious club. But we'll find out. As I mentioned a couple times now, we're covering Ovid, uh, who we'll get into in a second, but this is The Fall of Icarus. It's a collection of myths, basically. Is that how you would say it? Myths or fables of sorts? Yeah, in my um, version of it, it's actually broken up into fables. Great. Yeah, and mine, we'll get into this later, but had zero organization. It's basically oh, madness reading this. It was true, <laughs> true pandemonium in terms of structure, so we'll talk about that. Before we jump into the official reviews, though, we do like to set up a couple of basic questions just to familiarize you, the listener, with what we're talking about today. We'll begin with the who question, which I'll let you tackle. Who wrote this, Amanda? Um, so, pronounced uh, Ovid, but his full name is, I guess, Publius Ovidius Nasso. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was a Roman poet during the reign of Augustus, and he was the first major Roman poet to begin his career during Augustus's reign. And he was um, a contemporary of Virgil and Horace, who were um, really well-known poets of that time as well. Yeah. And um, so the those three, Virgil, Horace, and uh, Ovid, are considered the three canonical canonical yeah canonical yeah yeah canonical they're a part of the canon um, for um uh, latin literature yeah if you were in a high school or college latin course maybe even middle school i'm sure there's those are out there but if you were in a latin course this seems like pretty obvious material that would have been chosen or if you just went to a school that had a really classics heavy curriculum classics in terms of greece and rome which is usually what those terms denote then right. this is probably something you're familiar with i had almost no exposure and i got a i'd say i got a pretty hearty helping of greece and rome in college i guess mostly greece though now that i think back it was a ton of plato and a ton of aristotle so i maybe we skipped the romans for a bit yeah, maybe maybe you focus because you you did a lot of like philosophy too, right? Yeah, a good amount, and I'm sure that some of the uh, the one philosophical movement I associate with Rome is the 
Oh, shoot. It's really popular these days. It's like very self-help. The Stoics, that's the one. Uh, Stoicism is one that I... That one gets attributed to Rome a lot because there are a couple famous Stoics. Ben, I don't even know if it originated in Rome. I frankly don't remember. But that's just one I think about when I think of that um, philosophical movement. So, yeah, I'm sure I've encountered some, but Ovid never that I can remember. I mean, I I knew most of these figures that we'll talk about. Daedalus, Mm -hmm. Theseus, Hercules, whoever. Not Actually, maybe not most, but I knew some. And so some of those tales are just popular. They've been popular culturized in the meantime. So what did we read? That basic question, we kind of just said a bunch of myths from something called the Metamorphosis, which was a collection that Ovid put together where all of the myths he wrote or included, or I guess they're called fables and yours, are supposed to have some kind of theme around change or metamorphosis, I guess. That is a pretty loose interpretation. I think scholars have spent grand amounts of time trying to fight over how this links or doesn't link or the kind of connective threads that exist or maybe don't exist between the stories. To me, it felt uh, quite random, but again, we'll get into the structure of it a little bit later. And so, yeah, it's a largely influential thing or a widely influential thing. I know Shakespeare and Chaucer are two authors that the Wikipedia research department we deploy here and employ here at the pod <laughs> mentioned those two authors, and they they used the inspiration pretty liberally and freely. It seems like some of the plot things you can just copy-paste on top of Shakespeare stories, though, you know, that's something that's true for basically everything Shakespeare wrote. It's something that people... People give him credit for inventing the language, which is that's the that's the credit that is due. Yeah, I don't think his plots were ever that inventive. What two right. two lovers who can't fall? In, you know, come on. That's yeah. If you trace myths back far enough, you'll find some origins. But that's what we read. Why is this important? I think I kind of just covered that as well, so I'll just mention it. Yeah. Shakespeare, Marlowe, Ch- again Chaucer. There are a lot of people who are who were influenced by this work. And these myths have kind of just permeated all of society. They're in video games and pop culture, and there's the Disney Hercules cartoon, and on and on it goes. Greek and Roman myths are just part of pop culture at this point, essentially. Percy Jackson. Shouts to Percy Jackson. And Yeah, right? I know. Undercredited, (laughs) maybe. Undercredited. The movies didn't do it many favors, so. (laughs) No, the movies were (sighs) horrific. Those were rough. Those were rough. (laughs) Maybe in a future book club we'll dive into some Percy Jackson or something. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it could be. It could be. And so, yeah, it's just a widely influential thing. It's part of any, again, any classics curricula would probably include some Ovid in it. Not an author I had encountered, but the ideas, the text, certainly I have. Let's jump into the actual review then, Amanda. Do you feel like we laid the groundwork? I think so. Excellent. So let's start with our one-sentence simile reviews. This is how we like to keep it light at the top of the pod. We'll review reading this in a simile. Amanda, why don't you start us off this week? I said that uh, reading this is like listening to someone tell a story, but that person is so caught up in, in some of the details that there's just a sidetracked it reminded oh. me of uh grandpa simpson from the simpsons like listening to yep. him tell stories fantastic <laughs> and i'll give this uh pre-production sneak peek for the listener if you haven't heard us say this before we do our outline separately amanda and i do just to try and keep the revelations fresh on the pod you know it, real reactions whatever I basically said the same thing. I just said it's like listening to a really uh, digressive old history professor in college. Like if you ever had a lecturer, a lecturer who was just, you know, they came in with maybe an outline scribble on a sheet of paper or a napkin. But by the end of the class, they're just rambling about 
any topic yes. that connected in any small way. They're rifling off names of historical figures and events, just sort of at will. And there's no strong connective thread. There's transitions that are hardly justified. And the the one thing I would say, though, and why I wanted to use that one in particular is because while history lectures can be frustrating in that way, there are also these weird kind of interstitial moments where the professor will almost yell or, you know, where they just get like so into it where they, they hit upon some idea where they're, I don't know, they're talking about the Magna Carta and all of a sudden they're just like screaming about the Magna Carta and you're like, what the hell? <laughs> what are they? Well, okay. The passion is showing through. I felt this yes, had that passion. too. So I, I did want to, I would want to include a slightly positive note because there are passages in here where some real inspiration comes through, I think. Mm-hmm. So shouts to all the stodgy history professors out there i certainly respect the work you know that you're doing the history majors that i've met are are actually pretty excitable about whatever their niche um yeah history piece is like whatever they really want to focus on in history they do get really excited about it yeah to the point of like yeah kind of being yelly yeah i think (laughs) well and that with academics of any variety if you're going to go in that deep on something and i mean we should all be we should all hope to be so passionate about our careers i don't think that that always happens and that's that's okay in a sense too but yeah if you're going to dedicate so long uh, to getting your phd and all that i mean why not be a little intense about your defense <laughs> and interest <Yeah>. you know <laughs> it's, it's it's earned for sure Let's talk about connections, then. We're reading something quite old. We're in the thousands of years, I believe, or at least a thousand plus. You know, when was this written? Like 200 or 50 or something? Long, something crazy, Yeah, a long time yeah. ago. A uh, long time. And so connections might be hard to come by. I kind of copped out on this one. I just fell back on the classic, we're reading something super old themes. A lot of these have to do with trust and, and allyship and just kind of like, who should I, who can I trust or who can I betray? And so trust and betrayal are just common themes in these old tales. And I, I don't know if there is sort of bludgeoning in this collection. Like I think with some of the myths and fables we've read that were actually a little more recent than this, they felt more aggressive to me, but mm-hmm. it shows up here all the time. I mean, many of them yep. end with some kind of betrayal or trust issue. So I just yep. kind of copped out and chose that again. How about for you? Um, just like all the other fables that we've read and the fairy tales that we've read and discussed mm-hmm. on this pod, I put, you know, just the general morality, any sense of right versus wrong and the punishment of wrongdoers. Yeah. Um, in, in this case, like mostly turning them into birds, apparently. Oh, sure. But uh, yeah. <laughs> for whatever reason. Um, but yeah, so just any interest in, I think... Um, what is right and wrong, especially from a Western perspective, this is, this is it. Yeah. And I guess that feeds back into what we talked about before, which is the canonization in in the Western quote unquote canon. It kind of does make sense then because there are issues of morality here and certain notions of right and wrong that shine through and you can connect those threads probably pretty easily. Uh, Again, I'm sure academics have, we'll leave it to them to do that work specifically. But I think, yeah, if you were to chart a course from, you know, 50 to 2020, this would probably be part of that conversation. So yeah, yeah, those things show up. Let's get into the the deep dive part of the pod then. When we're reviewing, we do like to give some quotes to clarify the style and the substance of the work. Do you have a quote you want to start us off with this week, Amanda? Oh, okay. Um, put you on the spot. <laughs> so I put, I'll, I'll start off with my positive quote first. Um, mm-hmm. Just because I like to start nice. Um, of course. 
<laughs> this we're is a from... generous we're a generous book club here okay folks we are we're kind-hearted yeah. souls reading these before texts. we tear you down we'll compliment you yeah <laughs> um so this one is from in my collection it's called fable four um so it's the one about the the boar that's running around and, and killing everything um it says, his eyes shine with blood and flames. His rough neck is stiff. Bristles, too, stand up like spikes thickly set. Like palisades do these bristles project just like high spikes. Boiling foam with a harsh noise flows down his broad shoulders. His tusks rival the tusks of India. Thunders issue from his mouth. And then it continues on. Um, so I chose this. This is a description of the boar right, um, right. itself. And I chose it because Ovid does um, do some descriptions. Um, he reserves the descriptions mostly for um, either the setting as far as like the specific place where the gods are um, mm-hmm. and, and where the action is taking place with the god itself um, or with the means of um, the god's punishment, right? So this is Diana's yeah. boar. So the the only descriptions that you get, so you don't get much description as far as like action or the characters themselves or anything like that. The description is just in anything that deals with specifically um, the god's location and the god's um, manifestations and and punishments. It does. Oh, yeah, he does pay some mind to action-heavy plots. I mean, that's kind of what you chose, kind of. I mean, it's odd because the boar gets a very righteous and justified description as this, you know, bloodthirsty, monstrous being terrorizing and ravaging the, you know, the party that's there to kill it. But then the actual action in terms of the characters, it just kind of is sentence after sentence of he threw a spear and missed, he threw a spear and hit a tree, he tripped yep. and didn't throw his spear, and it's just that part doesn't come through. And also, since you're introduced to the characters in about a paragraph, and there's about thirty of them, I don't, I didn't count, but <laughs> roughly that many. Yeah. They yeah. just you're kind of like, oh, old Euclidid D's didn't miss, or he missed. Okay, <laughs> old on, on to old Petronomaclus. Okay, well he, I guess, didn't th- he hit a tree as well? And it just it's a lot of who cares. I mean, but right, inter- it's just listing. Yeah, at that point, yeah. yeah, he does a lot of listing of of the action sequence. It was like Sinbad the sailor almost. Um, yeah, in, in in just the the rifling off of the action without actually like giving us any visualization of the action. Yeah, and it, but it's interspersed with those moments. I actually picked one kind of similar to that when it's, like you said, setting up the introduction of an important character. I'm not even sure if Fate, um, or Hunger, rather, in this myth was a god character, but she may have been. She's like the embodiment of Hunger. But anyway, right. there's a woman looking for her series, also a goddess maybe, but um, I don't even remember. But it says, Ceres went to look for Hunger, whom she found in a stony field, tearing up a few scant grasses with her nails and teeth. The creature's face was colorless, hollow-eyed, her hair uncared for, her lips bleached and cracked. Scabrous sores encrusted her throat. Her skin was hard and transparent, revealing her inner organs. The brittle bones stuck out beneath her hollow loins, and instead of a stomach, she had only a place for one. Her breast hanging loose looked as if it were held in position only by the framework of her spine. Her joints seemed to seemed large in contrast to her skinny limbs. The curve of her knees made a real swelling, and her ankle bones formed protru- protuberances that were out of all proportion. And I could go 
on because there's like another page of that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think, I mean, it's incredibly ludicrously vivid. And you have to wonder at what point the diminishing returns start in terms of a description. This is uh, something that the kind of literary high-minded may say never. The author can run rampant and keep the reader on the hook for as long as they want if it fulfills the vision, you know, and the objective of whatever they're writing. And for some reason, these moments, I'm kind of on board with that side where I'm just like, yeah, let it rip. I don't know. This is wild. What a, you know, what an image. And you feel the... I don't know, it's kind of such a creepy disgust for this being, this kind of sad, saggy creature that's, I don't know, content to just claw at the ground and is this translucent bit of bone, bag of bones. And anyway, I just thought it was quite vivid. But, you know, it's just sandwiched in a story that I don't remember at all and will never remember. I don't remember the plot of that in any way because it it went from one to the another. I'll use this point to soap or this moment to soapbox a point. My collection had no transitions between any myths. It didn't have paragraph breaks. It didn't have line breaks. It didn't have literally anything. And so, and I don't know if this is true to the uh, the Ovid original or if yours is really, really different. The connections that happen and the transitions are these moments where, let's say at the end of the Boar myth, it mentions that Theseus did something. The next paragraph will say... And years later, Theseus, by the way, was at this other island, and that's the transition. So it uses Mm -hmm. basically the existence of a character in one to just leap through space and time to another random connection, and then it just launches into another myth. And so you're just kind of hitting the reset button without... I just think a little structure and organization would have helped me immensely reset my brain. Like literally a page break and a new title... That it would go so long to helping my brain, or it would go so far, rather, to helping my brain like and understand these and be able to just segment them and kind of categorize them in my mind. Because it's just, your brain has to be on high alert wondering, when is this going to end? And then when do I have to realize we have shifted to 20 new characters, none of whom I'll also remember the names of? And <laughs> and because there's so many names, I don't even, you have to know those transitions so perfectly in mind yeah. that otherwise you're just going to be lost in a morass of just names after names, doing random actions to and against each other, for and against each other. Anyway, so that just exhausted me. I don't know if yours had clear breaks, but mine literally never stopped. Yeah, mine definitely did have clear breaks. So um, you had mentioned uh, before we um, started that it was taken from book the eighth and book the ninth, yes, right? Right. And so I have that in print because I print. I always print out the stories when I read them because uh, I'm old school like that. And sure. So I looked at those as like volumes and then within each of those volumes. So in book the eighth, there are several fables and it's broken up. Each story says fable one. And then, and then directly after the, the title fable one for me, it has a summary of the story that's about to come. The fable that's about to come. Okay. Yeah. And then it's got the fable itself. And then what I really enjoyed was there was an explanation after the fable um, that explained how that fable actually holds up to history. Oh, like where okay. did Ovid get that story from sure. and how did it actually relate to real events in history, which was yeah, useful. Yeah, it was great. That, that was the, 
only thing that I really enjoyed about reading. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All of this. It's, uh, so yeah. I, I could not imagine not having that organization. I think that I would have fallen asleep. It's wild. It was, it's really incredible. You have to, you're, I had to be on such high alert. Like yeah. the one, the one about Minos, for example, when the woman mm-hmm. tries to get, I'm about to pull a quote from that one, but when the girl falls in love with him and tries to help him defeat her own father and he rejects yeah. her, like the yeah. transition out of that one into the next one is when Minos had returned safely to Crete, he disembarked and sacrificed a hundred oxen, the trophies he had, and then he goes on. But then after that is when it's like, oh, but now we're talking about, da-. basically it takes a paragraph from there and then in the next paragraph it gets to Daedalus. So the transition mm-hmm. is, Remember Minos, the guy from the other story? Well, he eventually yeah. went back home, and oh, he knows this dude Daedalus, and now it's Daedalus's myth. Go ahead and pick it up, Daedalus. But that yeah. happens. Yeah, it's just insane that you'd be expected to think we're moving on to a new thing now, and it happens mm-hmm. with no hint or warning. And anyway, if this were like a short myth collection in twenty parts, I might have even thought maybe highly of it at times. It just. I don't know. You had to be, I had to be on my toes the whole time. I'll actually count that as my second quote. I could pull the other quote I was going to pull, to be honest with you, listener, I'll I'll spare you. It's just a paragraph with 30 names in it. Like that's just what this is. This is just a a thing you have to read that has 30 names and a couple of them have received the cultural icon status, your Theseus, your Perseus, your Hercules. And then the rest, it's just madness to read it. You'll have to, you'll have to keep a notebook by to make sure you know the differences between all of them except you really don't because most of them either do nothing or die so yeah that's a good point yeah any what was your other quote i think those two things i just said will fill in for my other ones i'm not going to subject them to that but do you have another quote (laughs) we could talk through yeah um this one i pulled from the first fable um which was uh, about you were just talking about it about um minus and what is her name the the daughter Oh, the one who got the lock of hair? Yeah, got the lock of hair. Scylla. There you go. Oh, yeah. Scylla? Be- because she Scylla. she yeah. becomes like some kind of ocean monster. It's her and uh, yeah, she Charybdis? She becomes a bird, too. Or a bird, okay. But then Charybdis yeah, is the birds. other ocean monster? I don't... I thought Scylla was like an ocean-dwelling monster, but I uh, probably way off. I know in the myth, she did become a bird. That's true. Yeah. She's like chased yeah. down by her father, right? Right, yeah. who had also turned into a bird. Naturally. Lots of people turn into birds. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> so I chose um, a quote about her specifically. Um, it says, for perish rather that this is, she's talking to herself and like talking to herself about yeah. Minos. Um, for perish rather the desired alliance than that I should prevail by treason. And then... The next paragraph says, my determination is to deliver up my country as a dowry together with myself and so to put an end to the war. So she goes from like, I would never commit treason even for this love. And then she's like, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and commit treason. Yeah, let's get it over with. The love, yeah. (laughs) And it was like a paragraph and she's talking to herself the entire time. So it's not even like a huge, it's just, so my issue (laughs) with this Mm -hmm. is that I feel like Ovid in in this compilation uses characters just to further his plot, which is the plot is based on furthering a moral yeah. um, story, right? So it's all about pushing that moral. And so what happens is that you the character development, it does there's no character development. I mean there right. was even like right a list of just characters that just died willy nilly 
half of them. Yeah. And like th- with Scylla, who is a major component of this story, you would think since she's committing treason against both her father and her country, right? She's a princess. And it's like the, she just does, there's no consistency there with the characters and they're just there for the plot. And, and that really bothered me. They're, it's quite literally, they're just moral chess pieces on a chessboard for Ovid yeah. to move around as PCs fit. Now, granted, that comes with a huge addendum to it, which is that's kind of just what storytelling was <laughs> in some of yeah. the classics and capital C classics. That's just sort of what you get. And so if but if that type of writing and storytelling is bothersome, then, yeah, you'll be eye rolling through a lot of this. It's like soap operatic. They're, they're really just not even people. I mean, the way they speak and the way they'll do it, they'll just rip off a soliloquy in the middle of a conversation. It's just not it doesn't have a flow that would be familiar to someone who's accustomed to stories of the last 30 years, for example. So, yeah, it will feel quite foreign. I think, I mean, that's always the lens we sort of try to forewarn about. If you go in with that mindset and you know what to expect, I, you know, you're going to get that bore description in there and it's pretty rad. <laughs> but so, I, you know, take that for what you will or that description of hunger, which is really brutal. I think that, yeah, yeah. again, there are moments that shine through real, real prose moments. But, yeah, the construction is just what it is, 100%. And we, we've railed against that before and we'll, we'll rail against it now, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Not the most fun thing to read. It can be fun in an academic setting or a class, I guess, but just if you're sitting on the beach. I, I don't know. I don't know if that's what yeah. you're going to be wanting to read. Wow. If you are, then... Could, yeah, yeah, props. I can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Depends on the context, but I agree. I agree. Let's uh, move to the literary corner then. This is the educational segment of the book review episode where we try and educate you, the listener, on something we picked up on. Literary device, rhetorical device, something like that. Amanda picked it for this week, so go ahead, Amanda. What's the lit corner about today? Uh, it is... I believe it's pronounced Deus Ex Machina. Yeah, yeah. It's Latin, I think, too, so there we go. Yeah. Um, So it comes from the Greek drama tradition of uh, literally using a machine to lower or lift characters that were playing Greek gods on the stage. Okay. And um, then it evolved into a literary device where it's just talking about um, using either gods or using characters or using um, props or anything like that to uh, kind of miraculously change some aspect of uh, the plot or to solve a problem that seems like it's insolvable. So you see this a lot with like Mission Impossible and other spy movies where it's like they're in this tight spot, but miraculously they have this pin that they can MacGyver into something, then right. they can escape, right? There's the one thing that just suddenly turns it around for them that somehow they miraculously have. That is yeah. Deus Ex uh, Machina. Um, so I, I chose this one specifically because it is about, it comes from the idea of like uh, introducing the gods and then like having the gods exit. And we see with, <laughs> these fables there's a lot about the gods in fact like the last two fables are about um like a river deity right yeah like he's yeah. the main character against hercules that one yes yeah yeah that dude um and it's about uh 
these fantastical elements that are introduced into Ovid's fables that don't seem to always fit. And you're just like, uh, really? Like, okay, yeah. whatever. Like, I get it, I guess. <laughs> and I think the, the presence of the gods or the creatures like the boar, things like that, do liven things up and it sort of provokes the most descriptive moments in a sense. But the yeah, the plot is just going to be what it is. It's Roman or Greek mythology. It's going to be gods doing abhorrent things or jumping in and swooping in and doing some heroic deed or you know fantastical thing and very little of it is expected or built up to it kind of fails the Chekhov's gun test of good storytelling that I feel like a modern reader would expect now where it's everything everything must pay off maybe not in the easter egg way that I hate but in just the coherence of theme and idea way that we would expect and you know I don't think I could reach the end of many of these myths and say the morality is unclear. So in that sense, they're successful, I, I guess. But that doesn't mean they're, they have to be super well considered in by our definitions mm-hmm. and expectations of story. So yeah, it's exciting to see those people show up and those occurrences happen. Does it make the entire story worth the slog? You know, especially worth the dialogue of two pages of just a random soliloquy about morality or something or what what our loyalty should be or something. Yeah, it's preachy, which is, again, something we've railed against before. And, yeah, I think sure. – I don't know which story the deus ex machina was the most noticeable to me. I'm not sure. Now that I'm thinking about it, I, I don't even know. Maybe – well, there's the one where the gods visit that old couple who take them in. But mm-hmm. and so that's that entire construction is about a random occurrence with gods that, you know, they're just but that's such a clear morality story about, you know, caring for strangers and everything and being selfless that I don't even know if I could consider that literary device there. It's sort of just the whole crux of the story. So it's kind of that kind yeah. of not. I don't know. Well, I was thinking of um, the story of uh, the guy who with the famine story. Right. And then the he's like selling his daughter. And then she's trying to escape, and oh the, yeah, the, um, I think it's Neptune who like gives her the ability to change her form. Yeah, right. Yeah. So she has no means of escape, and then the god is like, "Oh hey, what up? Let me help you out here." Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, what up? Let me help you out. Not something the gods always say. So when that yeah. happens, you be happy. Because the other option is, hey, what up? Fuck you. And then, and then it's trouble, only trouble from there. Yeah, yeah, that's good. All right, let's move to the review segment. We are ready to, I think, review this collection of myths. We have two parts here. The first will be the Russell French in memoriam, so what's good about it segment. This is where we will be genuinely positive and enthusiastic about something we read. I, to me, I'm going to start. The Boar segment, I kind of liked. Even the parts that were objectively uninteresting, like paragraphs of people's names I didn't know missing spear throws, was just kind of goofy. And the interstitial descriptions of the Boar were genuinely quite striking, I thought. So yeah. the, the, that stuff was frightening. I think it built the right tension, more or less. And, but, you know, characters are killed in, like, a sentence, and I'm like, really? You did four sentences on the tusks, but you can't do more than a <laughs> sentence on this person, like, getting gored to death or what have you? So yeah. even then, I was just kind of, like, laughing along, but I sort of enjoyed that story for as much as I ignored the names, you know? So I, I that would be my shout-out for this one. For, um, specifically with the boar scene, my favorite um, part of the fight that he 
half-heartedly describes is yeah. um, when they all get excited and they all throw their spears at the same time and they like bounce off of each other and stuff. I was like, yeah. that's funny. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Was that, wait, did you pick that for your what's good about it moment? No, that is not. Uh, I was, I was, I was, no, I was just hoping that what serendipity. <laughs> I mean, sometimes we align, but I was like, man, if we both pick the same <laughs> myth, that'd be hilarious. What was yours then? Um, mine is actually, I, I guess it can't really pertain to um, your version, um, but it was the actual explanations at the end for me oh, where yeah. he ties it to the history. That was just, I found that fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, gosh, an annotated version by the person who wrote it. What, could we do any better? We always recommend yeah. annotated versions when you can get your hands on them. Anything with footnotes, I guess. Anything that helps. Yeah. And so, especially with something older and more dense, can be of great assistance. No, that's, that is good. Did you learn anything that you'll remember? Anything truly uh, deep storage memory bank stuff? No, not really. Fantastic. I mean, my, <laughs> my, my interest in history is. Uh, pretty shallow, but yeah, um, yeah. I just remember reading it and, and it compares like, oh, well, this particular trope or like turning into the the bird for this actually means this because historically this. So I liked seeing how Ovid kind of twisted history yeah. to make it poetical. Yeah, yeah. And the poetry, mine was in prose. Mine had been translated into paragraphs in prose. But the poetic elements, I think, shown through enough. Enough to enough to garner a little uh, nod of the head by me. It's, you know, there's some striking parts. All right, I think we've talked around it enough. Let's jump into the actual rating. We use a three-part or three... It's not three parts. I keep wanting to say point. We were in the point system for so long, Amanda. I don't know what to say. Yeah. I'm all tongue-tied. We, we use a, a three-option system. <laughs> it's a yes, no, maybe. Either yes, we think you should read this right away. No, we think it's a pass. Or maybe you should read it, qualified recommendation. Why don't you start us off? What are you saying? I'm saying no. Um, (laughs) It is a dry read. Um, Yeah. Even despite some of the the poetical elements of of description with the boar and with um, some of the scenery and stuff, it's just not enough. It's... It's like reading the fables that we've had to read already with this collection, but with like even more names and <laughs> yeah, yeah, even more locations and even more references to um, historical references that you may not even know um, unless you've studied that period. And it's just, it's not, um, it's not like the fiction that we read now. So if you already are resistant to like recent historical literature like if you don't like victorian literature you probably are not gonna like this one either at least here um, you get the rapid fire story chain you know it's a short story collection yeah. basically and you know you it can is. try and wrap that theming and well again we'll let the historians and academics ar- argue over the coherence of the metamorphosis as a whole but it's basically yeah. a short story collection it is and it's and it's it's not cohesive in a lot of ways and and it is very preachy as well so yeah. unless you have like a really deep knowledge of history and, and of like the roman deities and you find them like really fascinating and you want to do uh have more knowledge of that this might be a good read for you but otherwise like yeah you 
there are other things that you can read that would give you the same information. Yeah, I'm going to concur with the no. I think I feel confident in it too. It's just too dull and disconnected. I think my version is utter madness. I don't know what they were doing or why they did it this way. I don't, I'll never understand that. Maybe I'll have to look at the penguin. I, I know penguins translated like the full metamorphosis text or something. There could be some reason, but the the segues between stories here is just sheer madness to me. I would, I would not recommend this specific copy to anyone it's basically impossible and so if you can find a different version you know and you have an interest in mythology history then bump it to a maybe but i feel quite solid saying no there there are people that freshly update and translate things like myths go watch the hercules disney movie and you'll get a good enough sense you know they embellish and have their songs and that's fine and i know for the more serious folks there, there are people who translate these things and you can look up, you know, which translation is the preferred one or the most lively. I know Neil Gaiman did some of that with Norse mythology a couple years ago. That kind of got some attention that he took a lot of the poetic Edda, which I believe is the Norse poetry. And there's the prose Edda, I think. I read the poetic Edda in college. But at any rate, there are attempts of re-energizing mythology and sort of making those myths just modern in a way so you know seek out that kind of thing this is for the hardcore only i agree completely (laughs) diehards only and so just a no is fine yeah i side note totally off topic but you did mention neil gaiman and i love his writing so much i really hope we get to read something of his on this podcast because Love you know, it. we do choose love, love, love what it. to read after this penguin thing is done. So, yes, <laughs> we could make it happen. <laughs> it's true. I mean, yeah, uh, we, we will have free reign in seven more episodes. We'll be cut loose Woo! upon the world. God help us all. <laughs> <laughs> For now, let's wrap this episode up. Next week, we will be back with another review. And it's going to be we're heading back to ancient Rome, Amanda. I don't know if that excites uh, you or makes you afraid. Mm, I'm a little afraid. It seems like weird erotic <laughs> poetry again, though, or something like that, or just like <laughs> smatterings of random little verse. So who knows? It could be fun. It's by Sappho. Never read that before. Never read him before. My uh, Apparently my Roman education, classics education was really lacking. So Mine this is a good way to fill in those <laughs> blanks, though. And now we can be more elitist at dinner parties than ever. So that's as always, Sweet. we're delivering upon the podcast's stated goal and mission. So we can be excited about that. Uh, Excited for that. Be back next week with Sappho. Thanks for listening, people, as always. And until next time, we will see you between the classics. 